From Muhlenberg College, this is 2402. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. My name is Sofia Echevarria, and for this episode, Lauren Anderson spoke with Mashid Major, class of 2017. Mashid is working as a cross-cultural worker at New Zealand Red Cross. In this interview, Lauren begins the conversation by asking how Mashid started her journey to Muhlenberg College. My family moved to Pakistan and uh, Iran as uh, many families did uh, during the wartime. And uh, and then they moved back to Afghanistan when the Taliban regime uh, was defeated. And uh, we went back to Ghazni for almost a year. And then from there, we went to Kabul. So that's kind of like indicating my uh, childhood as uh, moving around. And that's all due to war and conflict that was going on in Afghanistan or still is going on in Afghanistan. State Department had a program in Afghanistan already. And then in 2010, people came to our school and uh, they had a scholarship and under the name of YES uh, uh, program, YES uh, Youth Exchange Studies Program, if I remember correctly. And that was the year that everything happened. And then I moved to Columbus, Ohio to attend public high school there. And I was there for a year. And as I did my year there, I applied for other opportunities to finish my high school in in the States as well. So that made me to apply to a few schools. And I ended up going to St. Timothy's School, a private all-girls school. And that's how they define themselves in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was in Baltimore for another two years, did uh, my baccalaureate program there. And then from there, I started applying to colleges and Muhlenberg ended up uh, to be where I spent the next four years. And that's uh, my journey of coming to the States to make it short. Can you talk a little bit too, as you were getting to Muhlenberg, um, the program that you also got involved with, with Vital Voices? With Vital Voices, actually, it's funny because uh, I got involved with that when I was at St. Timothy's, the high school uh, that I went in Baltimore. It was uh, 11, yeah, 11th grade. They took us, we had a wind term program. They took us to uh, places like embassies, organization to really open our eyes into what's going on in the world, just to name a few. And Vital Voices happened to be one of them. We visited the office in D.C., we, uh, a few people came and spoke to us, and then we returned back to school. And then a few months later, they sent an email to us, to our schoolmaster, and then he shared it with us in regard with if you have any community projects that you would like to do in your community, please send us a proposal. And I was very unfamiliar with proposals and what that meant, but I had an idea what I wanted to do. So that was when Book Cottage was born. I was thinking of like creating some sort of library space for the children and youth in Afghanistan to come together and read books, discuss it, because I knew not much opportunities were in Afghanistan to bring children and youth like that together to really read something, enjoy it, analyze it, discuss it, and let it sink in in terms of like what the messages to them and how they understand it and how they're going to end up using it for themselves and in the societies that they live at. So that was basically the idea. And obviously it was very raw then. 
but uh, I sent the proposal nonetheless to the Vital Voices and it got accepted and it was fund for 15 projects. I think that if I remember the number correctly and I was one of them, I was actually the only international student at the program because it's based for the students in the US that mostly live there and are from there. But I took the program back to Afghanistan and started Book Cottage. It started from a small group and then that funding allowed me to have a space and have books. And then a lot, we did a lot of um, book drives. Um, I had very dear teachers and partners in high school who really helped me to do book drives and a lot of other help to send it to Afghanistan. So it was definitely a team effort. I came from Afghanistan and initially there's a joke that politics is in our blood, kind of like we cannot really untangle ourselves from politics because it impacts our life so closely. Any decision that's uh, that's made um, on our behalf uh, within the government or international level, um, national or international level. So I knew that I was interested in politics. I knew that I wanted to know more about how these decisions are made and what kind of mechanisms are out there that those who are making this decision consider and how that diplomatically works or uh, how do they know what's base, best for the people and making all these decisions. So knowing that in the background slowly have heard of like IR, political science, all these things, I entered Muhlenberg. And, I, and then in the meantime, I was interested in, in a few different other areas as well but I had to narrow it down. So that liberal arts method of uh, Muhlenberg is so helpful in that sense. To that year, you try out, you really try to dig into your interests and see what speaks to your heart. And I did that. And yeah, international studies uh, program at the end won me over with the courses, the department, the professors, and the way in which did they engage with you. And then I took a few courses and I'm just like, yes, I want to know more about this. Introduction to uh, international studies. And this is fascinating that people can actually come up with these kind of things in organizations like United Nations and those initial discoveries that you make as a student. And then later on, um, with each class, with each book and paper, you realize the depth of it and the complexity of it. And that makes you more curious and interested. And that's how I started be interested in international uh, studies. And then from there, I took other courses in women's studies within women's studies program. I also was very interested in women's issues and women's rights and how all that plays into the rest of the world. But I didn't know that there's such a beautiful way of these courses, philosophy of feminism and uh, psychology of women and women in politics courses and all those things really gave me the tools to how to think about both these things that I'm really interested in intertwinedly and uh, what does uh, that mean for me in the future? Tell us about um, your considerations about what you initially thought you wanted to do right after graduation. I know you were looking at grad school and possible work. So talk to us a little bit about that time period and what decisions you made. I was in my senior year. I consider myself being a spontaneous person and also plan things. So I was, I was planning when after graduation, I go to grad school and then I do some more school and that's how I planned it. Senior year arrived, things didn't turn out the way that I planned. And I ended up going to Washington to accept a fellowship there with an organization called Sahara Education. 
I went there and uh, worked for a year. And then from there, I moved to Afghanistan to be in Kabul for a year. And it was with, believe it or not, with a business company. I call it a business company. It was really a consulting firm that I worked with and very male dominated for me to have been graduated. In Sahara education, I worked with a group of people who worked in Afghanistan. So they made schools for girls in Northern uh, Afghanistan, Mazar-e-Sharif. And then from there, we did a lot of other programs such as early marriage prevention program, which I worked with closely in terms of uh, designing uh, modules regarding mental health and how to speak up and how to really handle those stigmas around early marriage prevention programs and what we mean by our programming, as well as working with the men in the villages. So it was, they were in their remote areas in Mazar Sharif. I think a lot of people listening might wonder why there would be a need to work on a program for child marriage, because that's not something that is a major issue in the United States. So if you could explain that a little bit relative to what is the situation in Afghanistan, it would be wonderful context. Early marriage issue in the world is uh, one of the most challenging issues. It's happening everywhere, starting from the U.S. As I did, I did some research when I was uh, as a fellow. It happens from U.S. to Afghanistan, and, uh, you name it, the country. However, the magnitude is different. The scale is different and how it's happening perhaps is different. So in Afghanistan, it's very predominant in a lot of villages, in a lot of cities, and it often happens. There are many ways, so I will not go into the details, but basically the male of the family kind of gave away their daughters, sisters in exchange for another item. And you name it that item, it could be land uh, or money. I want to say that it's not happening to everyone, but it's a very a major issue in Afghanistan. So that's uh, particularly what's happening in the northern part where we worked. And that's why the program, uh, beside building schools and doing other educational programs, like we did uh, programming, coding, and a few other programs in Balkh. And then early marriage prevention program was already working there to work with the high school kids. And it was a part of a leadership program that really helped them to talk about this issue, give them the tools and equip them with their right skills to really deal with it. Because it's not a very easy issue to stand up in front of your brothers and the males of your family who have immense power over you to kind of like um, resist and how that will play out. So we had partners on the ground who we worked with. It's a very significant issue in Afghanistan. That's why we really wanted to work on that issue. And there's a, clearly a political issue about that tying back to your interest in politics as well. Even though officially it's not sanctioned by the government, it, it is very much a part of local and tribal politics and policy. Exactly, exactly. It's a very, uh, very political as, um, as well as you said. Yeah, and that's just another reflection of where are the women amongst all these uh, things? How do you, there are a lot of laws that says that it's illegal, that says that you have so-and-so right. And the issue is very complex, very challenging. So right now over here, I'm trying to make it uh, simple and quick, but at the end of the day, it's very political. So from Afghanistan, then you went to grad school. So I, I was in Kabul and from there I went to grad school. And over there, I did program 
named Women, Peace and Security Studies at the Gender uh, Department. The program is uh, new. It came out of uh, basically about 1325 resolution that came out in the, in the UN, and we really discussed that in depth. Uh, but obviously, we took um, a bunch of other courses to really discuss this and really examine where does gender fit in today's world, in a world that uh, things need to be fast-paced. But often people believe like gender and the complexity that it brings to the mainstream is uh, not allowing that face, a fast-paced environment. It was um, an incredible journey of like thinking and writing and questioning along some really smart people from my professors to my peers so mm-hmm. uh, to be challenged myself and to challenge i feel like that puts god uh, really allowed me to do that to really think the things that i was taught and learned at Muhlenberg to put it in play in a different way and that was the london school of economics right uh correct tell us a little bit about what you're doing first of all and then Walk us through what a typical day would look like for you. And if there's not a typical day, that's totally okay too. So just like everybody to understand a little bit more about what your day looks like now and what kind of work that you're involved with today in New Zealand. As you said, there's no typical day, I feel. Given the work, we work with refugees um, in New Zealand and they are coming from all over the world. And we really, I work with the resettlement uh, team And that means when refugees arrive, they are in Auckland. And then from there, they are mostly placed in Christchurch. When they come here, our team really helps them to settle down, to really make a home in this new city, in this new country. And we help them from anything with housing to medical appointments to how to really navigate the system and how to do social programming and how to advocate for them when it comes to the policies within Red Cross and other agencies, how to partner with them to, for them to feel welcomed and to feel included and being a part of this society. So that is, um, that is us and uh, our work obviously varies from working uh, with children to adults and what are the unique uh, needs uh, for women as they come with their journey. Of course, that's perhaps one of my special interest in how to their stories how who tells the stories how to tell the story and who thinks what is important in the story who decides those things so it's an incredible and rewarding role in terms of like to be able to engage in a, such a raw way with their stories and to be that they trust you and share that and uh, being as a person who moved around and who was uh, new to so many places so many times since 2010, I really relate to them and to their stories and those challenges that they face with and the way in which that they overcome. And right now to be in a position to help and kind of like give back because I have received over my journey and moving around so much help and support to be able to do that. It's very pleasing and exciting to wake up in the morning for. And it must be great for the people that you're working with because they see you, they get to know you, and they understand that you understand them in a way that somebody like me, for example, as much as I love that kind of work, would want to do that kind of work, there's a special bond that I'm sure is there and forming between you and the refugee community because you share that. And that that is something that somebody like I don't share. And, mm. and I think that that 
you're already an empathic person. And I think that that must be something that is so reassuring to them to look at you. And I know you're not going around telling them your story, but I still, it's got to be really terrific for them. And and where are most of them coming from? Is there one part of the world that these refugees are coming to New Zealand? They're coming from Afghanistan, Syria, from, I hope I pronounce it right, Eritrea. Um, Eritrea, yeah. Yes. And yeah, mostly from uh, those countries. The program actually started in 2019. So it's very new uh, as they are doing their resettlement program. And uh, uh, yeah, so the refugees are coming from these countries mostly. But uh, they are thinking to accept more. So the number is increasing. So we are hoping for more refugees to arrive. I know that you haven't been there a long period of time. But I'm curious, and we're all interested in knowing about what changes, you know, if any, you have seen in your industry or in your job that can be COVID related or not related. So far from what I have learned and as I observed my team and went through the programs with them, one of the major challenges obviously was the way that they communicated with each other, because our help is very personal, very one-on-one kind of help. Mm -hmm. Uh, So COVID obviously restricted those assistance and programming. Uh, However, New Zealand has been very lucky in terms of like COVID. When I arrived, there hasn't been, except like a few cases that happened in Auckland and uh, cities like Christchurch also go on level two. But other than that, uh, what I have heard from my team was that the number of accepting refugees were uh, decreased. So right now they're accepting only the cases uh, that are really vital and they have to arrive and settle. Uh, so that is one of the challenges because uh, usually they accept more families and former refugees. I must say former refugees because that's the language we use at okay. Red Cross because as soon as they arrive in New Zealand, they are former refugees. They, so they are not refugees. They used to be refugees, but right now they are part of the community. That's uh, a way that they want to make sure that they are included. They feel included and they feel welcomed to their society and the community. And that's such an important point because there's certainly dialogue in this country as well as other countries around the world. And by attaching labels like that, we depersonalize people. We make them seem not human, that they're a thing and not a living, breathing human being who has experienced extraordinary trauma. And just like when I look at people who have been victims of crime, you know, a lot of them say, I don't want to be identified as the victim for the rest of my life. That is something that happened to me. That Mm -hmm. was a period of time in my life, but I don't want that to define me. And so I love that they're using language like that Mm -hmm. because it, it speaks to that. Exactly. Yeah. So tell to us a little bit about some of your favorite things Mm. about your work right now and also some of the things that you find most challenging. I think there's so many, so many things that I love uh, about the job in terms of one of them, as I mentioned, it's immensely rewarding when I think I'm there to kind of like find the ways in which that they can ease their journey into uh, settling, settling into New Zealand and kind of really they are able to share their stories with. And I feel that's such a unique and important point. Stories, stories in general, your personal stories, the way in which that you have lived your life and what you did and mm-hmm. uh, what was difficult for you. That's such a um, fresh and uh, 
raw thing that uh, invaluable that you you be able to receive it. Uh, so my work involves a lot of uh, those stories, which I love, and the fact that I'm able to uh, communicate and to connect with them on uh, as I mm-hmm. we move um, from day to day to help them out. So that's very uh, rewarding for sure. And I should say I work with an incredible team here from around the world, and they come together and create this atmosphere to how to be supportive and how as uh, people like me have are new to the field and people have been for quite a while, how we, uh, how we collaborate and how uh, they can support us. So that is, that has been really good for a person who is new to a country, to a society, to a community and to a job uh, that has been incredible as well. But besides so many great uh, things about the job, another thing challenging perhaps is that we work with um, other agencies with uh, housings and housing situations and you name it. And with all those agencies, there's so the demand is so high from uh, the families and former refugees that sometimes it's out of our capacity to really help them. So that those are the times that we have to say no, or we do not have the resources to really help them out. That is very challenging. And obviously that comes with the advocacy part that uh, I'm really excited about in terms of like how we advocate as we um, fall short of some resources for former refugees and how that communication works and how that collaboration works with uh, uh, those agencies who work uh, directly or indirectly with the Red Cross or who don't work or that they need to work with New Zealand Red Cross Mm -hmm. to make sure the utmost attention and resources for the former refugees. And another one is also challenges relates to the story part that when they share their stories it's not easy the journey and I'm no stranger to that myself Mm -hmm. so to hear that and to see these people that they have been through so much and they're here and they're trying their best to feel at home in their new home and country and geography and that effort is there but you see language barriers and you see so many other cultural barriers and how to overcome that. And that process is not an easy one for many. Some people get over it very quickly, but for some it's challenging and uh, kind of like thinking about their home and uh, what they used to be. And therefore they're just like, oh, we were not refugees. They're conveying the message that we used to not be like this, to not have anything. We had um, our lives, we were Um, We had our communities and um, these things, but war, conflict, and so many other reasons made us to be this way. So those kind of what they left behind, but they still carry it with them as they are here and life is not easy. So uh, that's also challenging, perhaps on a very personal level for me to see and hear that. I imagine it has to be because you, like many of them, apart from when you came to the U.S. to go to school, all you've known is war in your lifetime. Correct. In your country. Correct. And that's not something that fortunately a lot of people at Muhlenberg really ever experience. It, it's difficult. It has to change you. And you know that that was one of always my concerns when you did go home for summers from Muhlenberg mm. is, are you okay? And yeah. are you safe? And, you know, I remember asking you that one time and I'll never forget your answer. You just were very calm. You never talked about it at school. And you just said, well, 
you know, when I walk out in the morning to go to work, I wonder if this is the day that the car I'm in is going to get blown up. Yeah. It struck me so deeply when you shared that. And it's just hard. I don't think most of us can imagine what it's like to only know war in our lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. Right now, actually, a few days, someone else also asked me that. And I give that question, uh, that answer. And I, and I thought about it. I'm just like, oh, my God, I gave this answer. I've, I give this all the time. And I basically, that's how I describe um, life. And that's unfortunately how it is for most of these people. I feel like in Afghanistan, but obviously, as these refugees are coming from such long conflicts and uh, war. Yeah. It's, it's just tough and the choice of leaving everything behind. Some people have that choice, but many don't. They have to. Um, and that's not an easy decision to just leave and drop everything that you have worked so hard and uh, trying to start something new. And that within itself is uh, huge. Yeah, it absolutely is. But I love so much that you are doing what you're doing because you're sharing and you're trying to make things better for everybody going forward. And I just think that you're already making a huge impact. And I hope to see you running some part of Afghanistan one of these days, some part of the government, because that's where you belong. And I, uh -huh. I think it would be amazing. Uh, but my personal opinions aside, because it's not about me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of advice would you give to students at Muhlenberg or young alumni who are intrigued and interested in your own path? And how would they go about taking the steps? And this can be academically as well as professionally to get involved in the kind of work that you're doing right now. I feel like, first of all, I should say that being flexible and allowing some room for the unknown, because you never know. What will happen? I planned my uh, afterlife Muhlenberg so one after another year, and that didn't happen. And at the time, I was uh, very upset. I'm just like, oh no, it didn't work out the day I went it. Now I I will be behind my plans so and so year. But I gotta say, my the two years that happened between my grad school and Muhlenberg years were two really wonderful years. From the year that I was in Washington just on a personal level to kind of allowing, uh, kind of like jumping and getting that fellowship and working there and learning so much about the things. And that really is hands-on thing. You, you have to do it. There's no paper that you have to write or the kind of like uh, books that you read, but definitely you're going to use that kind of thought process of analyzing and thinking critically and analytically. So that's happening. And then my journey also in Afghanistan and Kabul, it was after so many years, I was in Afghanistan to uh, work. And uh, that was uh, quite an environment as well. My colleagues were mostly men and kind of talking to them. If they hear this podcast somehow or in any way, we joked a lot of things about women's rights and sexist jokes and how we talk about that and how, we, uh, how I didn't find some of them funny and how we really discussed that and um, the challenges that we, for example, did in my gender courses at Muhlenberg, mm -hmm. how difficult it is to really confront when situations like that happen. We discussed these kind of issues in the classrooms forever. 
to kind of be able to do that in a that kind of environment was definitely something. It um, developed some some skills for me to how to um, talk about issues and how uh, how you pick and choose your battles and what that really means in a professional setting. So that was to be flexible, to allow for that unknown to be there. Um, and I learned a lot about from these two years. And in terms of my path, it was not that straightforward. So a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, and going for the opportunities that you have no clue uh, in terms of where it's going to lead to. You probably might have some sort of clue, but in terms of like, probably it's not going to sit with your plan. And that's okay. And that's okay because there's always... Um, if uh, you're a curious person, open to learn, in any situation, you're going to learn. So, and then the path that I am right now, working with refugees, it's also, I, I moved to New Zealand. I had no idea I came during the COVID time. Nobody's moving from their jobs. And uh, I ended up working for uh, New Zealand Red Cross, which um, I must admit that I didn't know that there were like national offices as well. I thought there was one big one and everybody worked under that umbrella. And I learned so much about their work since then. So that also comes uh, from another journey, kind of like finishing uh, in London and moving here, uh, not knowing and this opportunity comes up and you work uh, with that. So this is the part that uh, you're trying to allow space and time for learning and for uh, the things that you're not sure of. But definitely it's important in terms of like, if you're planning ahead, if you want to move for your career, I feel like at the end of the day, some sort of goal, some sort of aspiration should lead you, or you can use these steps to lead you to your, not final goal so-and-so, because I don't believe in that, but any goal that you might have uh, as you move towards your journey and uh, learning, professional, educational, whatever it may be to take those as steps uh, to um, really arrive to that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It makes total sense. So what's next for you? Do you have an idea? I know you're, you're still really in the midst of and loving what you're doing, but do you, do you have plans about what you think your next step might look like? I feel like right now I'm so afraid to say it since every time, <laughs> every time I did plan it, it didn't go according to the plan. So <laughs> right now I'm yeah. just open. I'm just open for any possibility to learn, to explore, to engage. And especially in terms of I'm really passionate about gender issues, women's rights, and how this all fits into the mainstream and how to question status quo. So any opportunity that allows me to do that to really be involved in that, I will welcome and go for it. I feel like I'm so, I jinxed all my plans. <laughs> so right now I'm just going to go with the flow and make the best of it. Is there anything else that you would like to add or touch on? I feel that I'm in a constant stage of learning and that's, um, and curiosity, asking questions. And it benefited me uh, greatly in terms of moving forward. And uh, one of uh, perhaps, just that effort in terms of to be curious in terms of learning because the world is changing in such a fast pace that it's almost sometimes impossible to catch up with. How we incorporate that uh, change into our everyday life, everyday conversations, and also be courageous in terms of questioning some of the problematic things. I mean, like I say some, but if you could go for all, that would be wonderful. 
but uh, how to question that and how to, and it doesn't have to be obviously in um, great scales. Activism starts small and uh, to advocate for the people that you think that uh, they are in need of. And if you're in a uh, position of a privilege, how to use your privilege to be able to do that. And if you're not, how you can um, seek opportunities that will allow you to be involved in that process. Because certainly I have not been in a um, position of privilege compared to many, but in so many ways, I have been in position of privilege. So kind of like what kind of skills and what kind of platforms I use to be a part of that journey and how I can use my limited privileges in terms of like moving forward. Uh, so basically never give up on activism and advocacy and questioning the status quo and going for what's difficult, but definitely rewarding in terms of trying to create just society where everyone feels safe, included and respected. And those are very invaluable values, at least in my book, and the way in which that it really um, changes you and uh, the people around you. And it's very rewarding in terms of like uh, to see that process. So if you're able, use your power to empower. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced, edited, and recorded by Paul Kompaski at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. 